So just a few months ago, there was a picture that went viral on the internet back at the PGA Championship in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And you may have seen the picture as a picture of Tiger Woods hitting a golf ball. And behind Tiger Woods, as he's hitting this golf ball, there is a crowd of people looking at Tiger Woods. Actually, they weren't looking at Tiger Woods, they were looking at their cell phones. And they were all taking pictures of Tiger Woods while he was hitting the golf ball. Did you see this picture? It's an incredible picture, this sea of smartphones, of people taking a picture of Tiger Woods hitting a golf ball except for one man. In the crowd of people, there was one man. He didn't have a cell phone in his hand. He had a beer can. Uh, But he was simply watching and taking in the moment of watching Tiger Woods hit this golf ball. It's an amazing picture. And of course, the beer company Michelob Ultra, they turned this into a commercial and promoted it because it was a great advertisement to sell beer. But uh, really, it was is a beautiful picture in the sense of here are all of these people in many ways, missing the moment that's before them. And they're on their phones. I think one of the reasons it went viral is because it's something that you and I can relate to, that we are a generation of people who are distracted by our devices. We're a generation of people who spend our lives on our phones or behind our phones, and many times we're missing the real life that's right there in front of our eyes. I don't know if you can relate to that, but I certainly can. I can relate to this frustration that I often feel where I get so distracted by my phone, by Netflix, by whatever, and I'm missing out on the real life that's right there in front of my face. My hope this morning, as we open our Bibles and conclude this mini-series over the fall, high holy days. My hope, my prayer, is that God, through his word, might give us that gentle and loving correction that we need to truly enjoy the life that's before us. I want you to open your Bible up to Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus chapter 23 is our text for this morning as we focus in on the final of the high holy days, the Feast of Tabernacles. And as you're turning to Leviticus 23, you can grab your outline as well. You can see we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at the text. We're going to look at the traditions around the Feast of Tabernacles. And we're going to talk about how in the world can we apply Leviticus 23 to our life today. Now, as you're turning to Leviticus 23, there's a couple background items I want you to be aware of. First of all, that the name of this particular holiday is the Feast of Tabernacles. But it's also called the Feast of Booths. The Hebrew name is Sukkot. And it's also referred to as the Feast of Ingathering. So multiple names really to describe the same week-long celebration. The Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Ingathering Sukkot, or the Feast of Booths. And this was one of the times in the calendar year where all Jewish men were required to travel to Jerusalem to celebrate this particular day. 
And so in the Old Testament, what we're going to read about here in just a second is that all of the men of Israel were required to travel to the city of Jerusalem for this week-long celebration called the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, Sukkot, or the Feast of Ingathering. And so with that background in mind, I want you to see Leviticus 23. We're going to look first at God's description of the timing of this particular holiday. Leviticus 23, let me read for you verses 33 through 36. God says regarding the timing of this particular celebration, he says, through Moses, again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel saying, on the 15th of this seventh month is the feast of booths or tabernacles or ingathering or Sukkot, the feast of booths for seven days to the Lord. On the first day is a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work of any kind. For seven days you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation and present an offering by fire to the Lord. It is an assembly. You shall do no laborious work. A couple things I want you to see here in these verses. Again, primarily these verses give us the time instructions regarding this week-long celebration. Regarding this week-long celebration, God tells the children of Israel that it's supposed to happen on the 15th day of this seventh month. But it's a week-long celebration. It's a week-long harvest party. As the Jewish people celebrated the ingathering of the harvest season, they're to throw this week-long party celebrating God's provision in their life. Notice as well that on the bookends of this particular party, on the first day and on the eighth day, was a solemn assembly, a unique Sabbath day in which no work was to be done. So God tells the Jewish people, listen, every year, I want you to gather together for this week-long harvest celebration. Well, starting in verse 37 and into verse 38, we see God's instructions regarding the sacrifices that were to be made during this week-long party. Notice verses 37 and 38. God says, through Moses to the children of Israel, these are the appointed times of the Lord, which you shall proclaim as holy convocations, to present offerings by fire to the Lord, burnt offerings and grain offerings, sacrifices and drink offerings. Each day's matter on its own day, besides, or you could say in addition to, those sacrifices of the Sabbaths of the Lord, and besides, or in addition to, your gifts, and besides all your votive and free will offerings which you give to the Lord. Now here, just kind of quick summary fashion, God gives the instructions regarding all of the sacrifices that were to take place during this week-long Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Booths, Feast of Ingathering, or Sukkot. Now, elsewhere, we learn that there were animal sacrifices that took place during this week. In fact, oxen were sacrificed during this particular week. A total of 70 oxen were sacrificed during this week alone. Can you imagine that? This is a week-long backyard barbecue in the city of Jerusalem with thousands of your closest friends. I'm pretty sure they didn't have Michelob Ultra, but this was a week-long party, a week-long barbecue 
eating all kinds of amazing food, again, with thousands of your closest friends. Now, as you can imagine, as the thousands upon thousands of people flooded into the city of Jerusalem to celebrate this particular week, you had to have a place for all these people to stay. And before the days of the Hilton or the Ritz-Carlton, God provided instructions in the next verses about what were you supposed to do with all of these people, this influx of people into the city of Jerusalem. Notice what they did in verses 39 through 44. On exactly the 15th day of the seventh month, notice again, when you've gathered in the crops, this is the harvest party, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord for seven days with the rest on the first day and a rest on the eighth day. Now on the first day, notice this, you shall take for yourselves the foliage of beautiful trees, palm branches and boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall thus celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. And then notice verse 42. You shall live in booths or tabernacles or sukkot for seven days. All the native born in Israel shall live in booths so that your generations may know that I had the sons of Israel live in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So Moses declared to the sons of Israel the appointed times of the Lord. So a couple things I want you to see here. Again, the focus, the main point is what are you supposed to do with all these people? These thousands upon thousands of people who are flooding into the city of Jerusalem, what are you supposed to do with them? Again, we are reminded that The first day and the eighth day are these solemn assembly days. We're reminded that this is a celebration of the harvest. But then God gives the instructions regarding the foliage. And notice again there in verse 40, it says, On the first day, at the beginning of the party, you shall take for yourselves the foliage of beautiful trees, these palm branches and leafy trees and willows of the brook. And they're to do two things with all of these branches. The first thing they were supposed to do is bring some of these branches together in in this um, waving, palm branch waving ceremony, a way of celebrating the Lord. I've got a reproduction down here on the table that I'll talk about here in a little bit. But the second thing that the Jewish people, the nation of Israel were supposed to do with all of these palm branches and beautiful leaves is they were to take them and to construct a temporary shelter, a sukkah, a tabernacle, a booth, and they were supposed to live in that booth for the entire week-long party. But why? Why take all the time and the effort to live in these booths, in these shelters, in these tabernacles? What's the point? Well, notice again verse 43 so that your generations may know that I had the sons of Israel live in booths when I brought them out from the land of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. See, really what the Feast of Tabernacles was is an object lesson, a reenactment, if you will, of God's faithfulness and his provision for the children of Israel during the period of the Exodus wanderings. When they wandered in the desert for 40 years, 
They lived in shelters. They lived in temporary structures. And day in and day out, God provided for their needs. He protected them from the elements. God gave them everything they needed. So the Feast of Tabernacles was a reminder of God's provision, of God's sheltering of his people in the past. But also over time, this reminder of God's faithfulness and provision to the people of Israel in the past gave them confidence of God's faithfulness and provision in the future as well. That even then, during the harvest season, God would continue to provide for their needs. Also, over time, this Feast of Tabernacles took on a future, a forward-looking promise as well of the days when God would fulfill his promise that he would dwell with his people again. And so over time, this celebration, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Shelters, was a reminder of God's faithfulness and presence in the past, in the present, and in the future as well. So this is the text that we see here in Leviticus 23. And again, I just want you to try to picture in your mind what this week might have been like. Some of you maybe went down to Fair Park earlier uh, yesterday and watched uh, Texas absolutely destroy the University of Oklahoma. And um, there's no amen or anything to that. You've got to be kidding me. All right, Andy, thank you, Andy. Appreciate that. But there was probably some tailgating going on, right? There's probably some tailgating going on. There was some barbecuing. There might have been some Michelob Ultra there. Uh, but uh, thousands upon thousands of people gathered to celebrate this football game. Imagine doing that in Christian form or a Jewish form for a week. This is something you would look forward to each and every year to come to the city of Jerusalem to celebrate with your closest friends and to rejoice in the provision and the protection of God. If there's one word to describe the Feast of Tabernacles, it's joy. It's joy. In fact, there's a writing called the Mishnah, and in it, different rabbis talk about the different holidays and things, and in the Mishnah, one rabbi says that if you've not been to Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles, you don't know what rejoicing really means. You don't even know what rejoicing really means. This was an incredible week of rejoicing. C.S. Lewis tells us that joy is the serious business of heaven. Joy is the serious business of heaven. But once again, if you're like me, sometimes I get so distracted that it's hard for me to really rejoice. I get so distracted, get so distraught by different things in my life that it's hard for me to stop and just truly rejoice in who the Lord is and what he's been doing. I love what John Ortberg says. He says, most of my life is spent in transit, trying to get somewhere, waiting to begin, driving someplace, standing in line, waiting for a meeting to end, trying to get a task completed, worrying about something bad that might happen or being angry about something that did happen. He says, these are all moments when I am not fully present, not aware of the voice and purpose of God. Again, just like those crowd of people watching Tiger Woods hit a golf ball, distracted by the devices in front of them. We can do the same thing. We can miss out 
on the true joy of life because of so many other things. So what do we do? To answer that question, I want you to look at number two on your outline as we discuss some of the traditions associated with the Feast of Tabernacles that developed over time. Three traditions there listed on your outline. The first and the most obvious one is living in a sukkah or a shelter or a tabernacle. And uh, even today, in neighborhoods here around Grace, if you're in a highly Jewish community, the construction has already begun for various tabernacles or sukkah to be built. Now, over the years, of course, the different rabbis have come in and given certain instructions for exactly how you're to construct the sukkah, the tabernacle, the shelter that you're to live in over the course of the week. Again, we don't agree with all of this, but I just want to highlight some of it for you. Different rabbis came in and said, listen, your tabernacle, your shelter, your sukkah must be temporary. It cannot be a permanent structure. Now, this one here I bought off of Amazon. It's a semi-permanent structure. It's not made of biodegradable materials, uh, but you're just going to have to use your imagination, right? By the way, real sukkot, uh, a real sukkah is much bigger than this also. But another rule regarding the sukkot is that it must have a, a roof through which you can see the stars at night. It cannot completely shelter you from the elements. Also, your meals throughout the course of the week are supposed to be eaten in your sukkah. You're supposed to sleep in it at night. It's common to invite guests into your sukkah. And again, according to the rabbis, you're supposed to spend more time in your sukkah, in your tabernacle, than you are in your own home. One Jewish scholar today said that the frail nature of the tabernacle reminds us that the real solidarity in our lives is God's presence and not material things like houses, cars, clothes, and the like. I think of that you and I would agree. That we need to be reminded that the real presence, the real solidarity in our life is the presence of God, not the things that we possess. And that's really the point of living in a sukkah. But there's two other traditions I want to highlight, and these are, I think, quite fun. The water pouring ceremony, this is under number two on your outline, and the temple lighting ceremony. There are a couple of traditions that did not exist in the time of Leviticus chapter 23, but over time they emerged and got included in this week-long party, and they most certainly existed in the time of Jesus. During the second temple period, when Jesus was alive, these next two traditions were very common, and in many ways, these became the focal point of this week-long celebration. The first one that I want to highlight is this water-pouring ceremony. Well, like I said, the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Ingathering, is a harvest party. The crops of the fall are gathered together... And you come together and throw this party. But another thing you need to understand is that this comes at the very end of the season of drought. At the very end of the drought season in the land of Israel. So cisterns are low. 
Riverbeds have run dry. Water is scarce. And so this water pouring ceremony that existed in the time of Jesus was a way for the Jewish people to express their faith that God would send the rains that they need. So let me explain what they did. Each and every morning during the time of Jesus, the priest would walk from the temple to the pool of Siloam. If you've been to Israel, the pool of Siloam is where you end up when you exit Hezekiah's tunnel. Hezekiah's tunnel is that really scary tunnel. It's really dark. It has water up to about your thighs. And when you finally emerge out of Hezekiah's tunnel, you're in the pool of Siloam. So every day during this week-long party, the priest would walk from the temple. He would grab a golden water pitcher. He would proceed down to the pool of Siloam and he would fill his water pitcher with water. Again, though, you got to remember this is drought season. He would fill his water pitcher with water. He would then begin walking back towards the temple. And along the way, as the priest was moving from the pool of Siloam to the temple, the people would grab their palm branches and they would wave them in the air and they would be singing the Hallel Psalms. They would be singing, Hosanna, God save us. And so during this procession, every single morning, the priest would go down to the pool of Siloam, he would come back to the temple, and he would pour the water in a silver bowl. I know this one is gold, you're going to have to use your imagination. He would pour water into a silver bowl, he would also pour wine, and this is, by the way, real wine. This is wine from Israel, so I feel like it's sanctified, so I'm allowed to bring it in to the sanctuary here at Grace, okay? Um, But he would pour water and wine into these bowls that would then get poured over the altar itself. And he would do this every single morning. And on the final day, the final day of the Feast of Tabernacles, the priest would grab his golden water pitcher and he would go down to the Pool of Siloam, not once, but seven times. Seven times back and forth, the priest would walk back and forth, gathering the water, bringing it to the altar, pouring the water in the wine, and the people would be waving their palm branches, singing, God save us. This was called the day of the great Hosanna. The day of the great Hosanna. And with that background in mind, I want you to flip over to John chapter 7. The Gospel of John, chapter 7. In John, chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, we get a bit of the context, the timing. John, chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, John tells us, after these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. But then he tells us in verse 2, now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near. So we're approaching, here in the Gospel of John, the feast of booths, the feast of tabernacles, or the feast of ingathering. And so then Jesus and his disciples, they actually do go into Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And then jump down to verse 37. 
Still in the context here of the Feast of Booths, verse 37 says, now on the last day, the great day of the feast, this is the day of the great Hosanna, the day when the priest seven times was uh, going to the the Gihon Spring, the Pool of Siloam, and pouring the water into the altar, pouring the wine onto the altar. On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out. He didn't whisper. He said, if anybody is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Isn't this awesome? Jesus, building on this tradition of the Feast of Tabernacles, this procession of the priests going down to the Pool of Siloam, bringing this water in a season of drought. On the day of the great Hosanna, when this is happening seven times, Jesus says, listen, if you're thirsty, come to me. From you, from the one who believes in me, will flow a river of living water. This spring, the Gihon spring, the pool of Siloam, it's going to run dry. But I'll give you living water. Jesus takes the symbols, the imagery here of the Feast of Tabernacles and he applies it to him. He essentially says, listen, the reality is that this water that this ceremony symbolizes, it's about the life-giving spirit that I will give to you. This is the first these additional traditions that developed over time. There was another one, again, that took place during the second temple period, during the life and ministry of Jesus. In addition to this water pouring ceremony, there was a temple lighting ceremony. A temple lighting ceremony. And here's what happened. Every evening, every evening, there were there in the temple 75-foot-tall candelabras in the temple. Now, again, these are not 75 feet tall. You're going to have to use your imagination. Um, But 75-foot-tall candelabras there in the temple. And every evening, just before it was to get dark, there were little lads, uh, the Mishnah says, who would climb up these 75-foot ladders and they would light on fire these giant candelabras. And by the way, you're going to love this. The Mishnah again tells us that the wick of these 75-foot candles, you're never going to believe this, the wick of these 75-foot candles was made from the used underwear of the priests. I'm not making it up. Uh, This is a great way for the priest every year to get his underwear replenished, right? You burn it on fire. And so um, every, every evening, the, these young lads who worked in the temple, they would climb these 75-foot-tall candelabras, and they would light on fire the, the underwear of the priests. And it says, the Mishnah says, that the fire that came from these candelabras would reflect off the gold of the temple, and the entire city of Jerusalem was lit. The entire city of Jerusalem was illuminated. It had to have been a spectacular scene. Every evening, this temple lighting ceremony took place. By the way, you have no idea how badly this morning I wanted to light some of my underwear on fire. Um, 
But I thought, I already brought wine into the church. If I light my underwear on fire on top of that, I'm losing my job, right? The internet is gonna see this and, and this is the end of my ministry here. So I restrained myself from doing that. Um, but what an incredible scene this must have been. By the way, uh, the Mishnah, this document, again, it's not inspired, but it tells us that the priest would juggle torches of fire. It was this huge party. People were dancing. It was a joyous occasion. But as I'm sure all of you can relate, you've had a celebration, you've had a party, you've gone on a vacation, and then it comes to an end, right? And there's a little bit of disappointment that sets in. And with this background, this imagery in mind, I want you to look at John chapter 8. John chapter 8, verses 1 and 2 says, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning, that is the next day, after the great day, the great Hosanna, the next day, in other words, the first day that I think these candelabras were no longer lit. Darkness has now set in. Early in the morning, John chapter 8, verse 2, Jesus came into the temple and all the people were coming to him. He sat down and began to teach them. And notice verse 12, then Jesus again spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Verse 20 tells us these words he spoke in the treasury, that's there in the temple, as he taught in the temple and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Again, don't you love this? I think it's on the day when the candelabras were no longer being lit. The light is, the light is no longer shining. It's no longer reflecting off the temple. There's probably a little disappointment as the people who have come into Jerusalem are now beginning to pack their things up to head back home. Disappointment has set in and Jesus says, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't walk in the darkness. Now the tragic thing is, as amazing as this is, uh, in John chapter eight, we read that the people didn't believe. They didn't understand exactly what Jesus was saying. They missed his point. And again, I would submit to you that we can do the same thing. We can miss the point. We can get so distracted by what we're doing that we don't see the one who's standing right there in front of us. So to help us, I want us to look at number three on your outline. If you want to, you're under no obligation. We're not under the old covenant. We're not of the nation of Israel. Uh, but if you want to observe the Feast of Tabernacles or Sukkot or the Feast of Ingathering, it begins at sundown tonight. It begins at sundown tonight. But why would you consider celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles? I think it's because all of us, if we're honest, we try to find joy and happiness in the wrong places. For some of us, it might be in a can of Michelob Ultra. It might be the sports that we watch or we participate in. It might be our work, our job. It might be our family. And some of these are very, very good things, but they're not gonna provide us the ultimate joy that we're all seeking. To again quote John Ortberg, he says, we all live with the illusion that joy will come someday when conditions change. 
We go to school and we think we'll be happy when we graduate. We are single and we're convinced we'll be happy when we get married. We're married and decide we'll be happy someday when we have children. We have children and decide we'll be happy when they grow up and leave the nest. And then they do, and we think we'll be happier, we were happier when they were still at home. True joy, he says, as it turns out, comes only to those who have devoted their lives to something greater than personal happiness. And that really is what the Feast of Tabernacles does for us. It reminds us in the sukkah, the tabernacle, in these incredible traditions, it reminds us that ultimately all of this is pointing to the one who brings us true joy. All of this ultimately is pointing to Jesus. That all of this longing that each and every one of us has, this desire for joy, is only going to be fulfilled in him. By the way, if you're a C.S. Lewis fan, this is essentially C.S. Lewis's point in his book, Surprised by Joy, where he talks about his entire life, he was looking for this joy. And all of the things he sought, all of the avenues he pursued, ultimately left him wanting more. And it's only when he came to the point of faith in Jesus that the deep longing of his soul was ultimately realized. And so listen, if this is something you think you need, then a couple things I would encourage for you. Number one is uh, you could build a sukkah in your backyard. I know I'm giving you late notice here. And so um, you can do like I did. I just went on Amazon and bought a, or not Amazon, I went to Dick's Sporting Goods and bought a tent. All right, so this week there's gonna be a tent in my backyard and I'm going to attempt to sleep in it with my kids. Uh, We'll see how it goes. Personally, I don't really like camping. I like the luxury, the comfort of my own bed, but we're gonna see how it goes. And uh, over the course of the next week with my kids, we're going to um, do a water pouring ceremony as a way of reminding us that Jesus is the true source of the longings in our life. We may even light some of my underwear on fire and perform a candle lighting ceremony as well. We'll see. Um, But I would encourage you in some way, maybe you're not a camping person, that's fine, to find some way this week to remind you that this life is just transitory, that nothing in this life is ultimately gonna fulfill your desires, that longing for joy that we all have. But ultimately, all of this ultimately points us to the day, Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21 says, then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell among his people and God himself will be among them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. The ultimate longing of our soul is not gonna be found in anything of this life, but only in the source of our eternal life. So find some way this week, there on the backside of your outline, I've given you a couple ideas and suggestions. You could come back tonight uh, for the concert tonight. It would be a great way to kick off this celebration. Come back next week as we celebrate the Fall Fellowship weekend, October 14th through 16th. And again, you can have, uh, there are more details there in your bulletin. But to close, let me share with you a quick quote from Dallas Willard. He said, we were made by God, made for God, made to need God and made to run to God. 
We can be satisfied only by the one who is infinite, eternal, and able to supply all our needs. The Feast of Tabernacle, ladies and gentlemen, ultimately points us to our heavenly home, that place where our soul's longings will be fulfilled. Let's pray for that day. Father, thank you. Um, thank you for the, just the fun that's here in this passage. Father, thank you for the, the brilliance of Jesus to take this week-long party and show how it ultimately is fulfilled in him. Uh, Father, thank you that uh, although you've given us many, many blessings in this life, great things to enjoy, thank you for that soul's desire at the same time that we know that this life is passing. Vanity of vanities. And so, Father, give us the confidence, give us the faith, give us the strength to find our ultimate hope, our ultimate joy in you, Father, Son, and Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.